0: Can you imagine a world without bees? What would that even look like?
1: Climate change, monoculture, biodiversity loss, pollution, and pesticide use are just some of the challenges that bees face today. Unfortunately, bee and other pollinator populations are declining around the world.
2: Bees are among the hardest working creatures on the planet, providing the most important ecosystem service of ensuring pollination and reproduction of many cultivated and wild plants which is crucial for food production, human livelihood, and biodiversity.
0: Veterinarians care for all animals large and small. And as of 2017, bees are under their care as well. I'm Alyssa.
2: I'm Bernadette.
0: I'm Fionn. And we're second year veterinary students at Colorado State University. Welcome to another episode of VetCast.
2: Welcome to VetCast, Veterinary Climate Action and Sustainability Talks, the podcast created by veterinary students at Colorado State University focused on the impacts of climate change on animal health. In this episode, we are joined by two hardworking scientists who are combating these issues bees face today and working towards more sustainable solutions. Dr. Giancarlo Lopez Martinez is from North Dakota State University and studies stress physiology in solitary bees at the USDA. Christina
0: Gelder is a fourth year veterinary student of CSU who has been heavily involved in apiculture and bee research. Welcome! Yay! Let's start off by discussing the importance of bees, the roles that they play, and why we should care about them. Christina?
1: Well, bees are important for. A multitude of reasons, economically, ecologically, to start. The stat floats around, but bees pollinate a a third of what is on our plate. Kind of a broad estimate, but um, I think it's important to think about just because honeybees play such an integral role in how food is produced. So without them, we don't have the same fruits and vegetables, or it's not as easily accessible. So economically, especially because we've moved towards monoculture cropping, Almost exclusively in how we produce food, animal, and plant in the United States, if we do not have bees around to pollinate those things, then production is greatly decreased. So almonds are one hundred percent reliant on honeybee pollination. So that is why almond orchardists pay beekeepers to bring their bees on site to make sure that pollination occurs. So that's extremely important, but um they're not only workhorses, they also have their own feelings and needs. So, Um, keeping them healthy, keeps the whole system healthy.
0: There are many different kinds of challenges that face bees today, um, including climate change, stress from monoculture practices and pathogens.
2: Dr. Lopez, can you speak to the impact that climate change has on solitary bees?
3: Well, you know, my focus on my work is, is in stress. And so in there, Historically, the focus has been, and and sadly, still presently, if I give you an hour of, let's say, heat, and if it doesn't kill you, then the conclusion of the experiment is that you survived. That's very short-sighted because an hour of heat can make you sterile. And for solitary bees, that's a big deal. For a honeybee that's already sterile, that might be less of a deal, but that means that it it wouldn't make them sterile, but it still affects them in some unpredictable way. So likely it affects their metabolism, likely it affects their flight. One of the things that's really connected with all types of stress is oxidative damage, which is another on my focus areas. So if I give you an hour of heat, you're gonna start accumulating free radical damage in your muscles. And next week you will be a slower flyer than you were this week. So in a colony where you rely on organisms, right? Young bees tend to be nurse bees, right? So they tend to be in the nest feeding and helping and undertaking. Uh, they, they get a certain age, and there, because they're older, they go outside and they're foragers, right? And, and foragers slash soldiers, depending how you sort of look at it. But those are already the older bees. They already have, let's say, let's say they're in the 60s, if we're going to compare it to people. So they're already not very spry by comparison. And now the temperature's hotter, so they accumulate damage faster. It makes them slower. In my current work with the solitary bees, I like the model for the work because it's all about the individual bees. So I can really understand what's happening to this bee. And if I give them an hour of a hot temperature, a temperature that's predicted to happen in their environment for about an hour in like five to ten years from now, for three days after just one hour of heat, that bee is slower than all the counterparts, significantly, somewhere between uh, 20 and 50% lower activity. They just don't move as fast, right? I don't have the flight data. I have, I have the walking around data. In that case, it's relevant because they build the nest. They have to carry these leaves, and then they glue them together with their saliva and lay the egg. So that means that they can lay less eggs per day. I don't know if the effect continues after three days, because that's about as long as we can keep them in the apparatus without food. So I didn't want to, like, introduce another variable. But in future studies, we're going to see if that one hour of heat changes their whole life. Because there's a possibility, right? Because one thing when we talk about bees and insects, they are what we call apoculotherm, where their metabolism temperature has to do with the outside. You know, us humans or us mammals, we're homeotherms. So our internal temperature is maintained by our metabolism. So when we go outside, yeah, it's hot and uncomfortable, but it don't make our heart go hot. But in the case of bees, it does. The temperature that's outside, that's what's going to match their internal temperature. So it can cook their little muscles, right? It can cook their little hearts. And then the effect becomes more global. That one hour heat affects how long they live without food. You know, so if they can't find food and it's hot, then they're less efficient at finding food and worse flyers. That one hour heat changes how long they live in their whole life. Right, My solitary bees, the males live about a month. The females live about two months. With one hour of heat, that's decreased by five days to the males and almost 15 days to the females. That's a big decrease in your overall lifespan just by an hour of hot temperature. So the effects, I think, are I, I'm almost afraid to know how big they can be and how far they can go Right. Like everything that we looked at with the solitary bees and just the one hour. And we're doing one hour because the afternoon hours is when you get these peak temperatures because of radiance and UV. And that tends to be even from work that I did almost 15 years ago, tends to be between 45 minutes and an hour and a half. So an hour seems to be a relative time of peak temperature. And we're just getting them with 45 centigrade, which some places in the U.S. commonly get in the afternoon. And sometimes with 50 centigrade, that is less common, but sadly will be more common moving forward. And yeah, that effect seems to be long lasting. Now take something like a honeybee that lives half the amount of time that my bees live. They're already an old bee when they went out there in that temperature. Yeah, it's going to affect everything that that bee is going to be doing for the next week and a half which is almost all the time that it has left.
0: Thank you for your insight, Dr. Lopez. Christina, can you tell us about how monoculture practices impact the bees?
1: Yeah, so being a commercial beekeeper has changed from just like selling honey, selling wax products to commercial pollination services, which is where an orchardist pays them to put their bees on site. They pack bees up, they ship them across the country. And then essentially what happens is a beehives will be on one type of food because they're within acres and acres of one crop type. So it's essentially if you were given white rice and like, okay, this is all you get to eat for three weeks. And then you're packed back up, shipped to another place in the country to pollinate there. And now you're on white potatoes for three weeks. So like, Their diet is extremely bland, um, which we can say for any other species of animal is extremely stressful and nutritional imbalances can just perpetuate and make things a lot worse. Um, And also their ability to handle stress because especially almonds have become increasingly popular. That is one of the main drivers that is stressing the honeybee population. And when they're kind of managed like livestock in a way, the question has kind of like fallen to the back, like, wait, uh, are we taking care of bees in the right way to like work them this hard? Cause they're really not as hardy as cows, <laughs> um, or uh, other livestock species. So, I mean, they're insects, so they, they need special care that, um, I think is just now kind of getting into question because they're under the jurisdiction of vets and we're looking at it and we're like, Hey, wait a second, they might need something different. So
2: Can you speak to some of the pathogens that bees have to deal with?
1: Yes, probably the biggest, most important and preventable one. I imagine as a bee vet talking about this in the same way we talk about heartworm preventative or flea tick preventative, but the Varroa destructor mite is um, a mite that infects bees and there's many different viruses We can treat the mite with topical miticide, again, like we would do with preventative flea tick medication, and it feeds on the fat bodies of bees, and so if they have a high mite load coming into the winter, they will be skinnier than they should be, and so they're less likely to do well through the winter, and that's something that there are many ways that beekeepers check for mites. One includes, this one's a little bit silly, but if you collect 100 bees and put them in a jar put powdered sugar in the jar and then shake them. Sounds like a bad idea, but the powdered sugar will make the mites detach. And then once you let the bee, the very angry now bees escape, um, you can count the number of mites at the bottom and there should be, you should see like one or two. And there's a lot of beekeepers who are like, yeah, I'd like 10 mites. It's fine. But if that's representative of the entire hive, that's a lot. There's also American and European fowl brood, which are two brood pathogens. So they infect the growing larva. That's obviously an issue because bee larvae are like behind capped cells. And so you it's actually difficult to assess outwardly if there is a brood pathogen. But if you see like kind of an unequal distribution of ages within the hive, that might tell you that bees are dying really young. And then there's also ways that you can like open up one of the cells that contains a larva and you can pull out the larva. And if it's like goopy, it's like called the rope test. Um, There's like different ways. And then there's also nosema, which causes diarrhea in bees. And when I tell people that bees get diarrhea, they're like, no way. (laughs) I'm like, no, they really do. And that one's actually pretty easy to spot uh, because there will be diarrhea on the front of the hive. Bees do not go to the bathroom in the hive. That is very unsanitary, so they fly out and go on a little bathroom flight, but if they just can't make it because they have diarrhea, um, you'll see it kind of splattered on the side of the hive. So that we consider kind of like a, basically like a stress colitis, (laughs) and so that's usually indicative of something else that's very stressful to the bees, like a high mite load or other stressors like nutritional imbalances, those sorts of things. The combination of them is usually what's really bad for honeybees. So
2: honeybees get IBS, huh? (laughs) Dr. Lopez, how do you think the overuse of antibiotics in these systems by backyard and hobby bee raisers has affected this whole natural delicate balance of bees?
3: So let's take the... uh the easy route, right? And let's just say that assuming there's no harm to antibiotic use at all, right? And I think that this is an unrealistic view, but let's say that there's no negative harm, that the antibiotic can kill the bees, but it's something else they have to process. So now you add it to your tiny animal with limited resources, mostly a sugar-based diet, and sugar-based diets require a lot of metabolism to convert that sugar into fat, It's a protein, a low-protein diet, right? So unless you are supplementing with pollen, right, and the issues that that may represent, there's a lot of energy that it takes to process things, right? And now you have to break these things down in your body. And so even if the antibiotic itself doesn't provide a harm risk, which it's unlikely, you have to process it. So now you put a new load, and adding that extra load limits what the bee can do. You know, it limits perhaps how many trips it can take or how much food it can pick up that day and bring back. Or that may be the one thing right now, half of the bees in the colony are metabolizing these antibiotics instead of burying the dead bees that have the pathogen. And while they're sitting there being slow because their metabolism is overloaded by this new component, the infection spreads. So I think it adds an unnecessary load before even considering the harm, the direct harm, right? That's just the indirect harm. There's no doubt that some of these things are going to be problematic because we really know so little overall about gut microbiomes. Gut microbiomes also change with age, with the condition, with diet, and you're now having to deal with antibiotic and antibiotic secondary metabolites. And this is the challenge about breaking something down. You break something that might not be toxic, but in the process, the intermediary might be especially with new age antibiotics that we don't know haven't been around a really long time. Some of these cases, because these are proprietary blends, we don't even know what it gets breaking down to. So the initial component may not be harmful at all. What it gets broken down to may. And so that, it just adds this unnecessary load. And it's a big question mark on the predictability and health of the colony.
0: Christina, can you tell us about the roles that veterinarians play in bee health? Um, so honeybees were moved under the jurisdiction of
1: veterinarians, um, January of 2017, beekeepers have never worked with vets before vets have never worked with beekeepers. And so it kind of brought a lot of questions in terms of like, okay, how do we establish a veterinary patient client relationship? Like we have to do with all of our patients in order to write prescriptions. How do you do that with 20,000 individual bees? And then what kind of veterinary model does that fit under? Is it better for large animal because they're already traveling? Is it better for small animal because they work with, Small animals. (laughs) So that has been challenging. And the fact that honeybee research has exploded since 2006, when colony collapse disorder was first coined as the main driver for honeybee population decline, that huge body of research is pretty much untapped by the veterinary community at this point, nor has it been kind of written in a way that is what we're used to reading when we're consulting medical journals and things like that. So those of us who are in the field who already know things about bees are kind of rising up and trying to educate others, but it's taking a while to establish relationships between researchers, between beekeepers,
0: between vets, like that whole circle. This definitely sounds like a collaborative effort that's still in the beginning stages. Christina, At the rate in which the stressors are impacting the bees, what do you think is the outlook for the near future?
1: Well, I strongly believe that bees will benefit greatly from veterinary care. (laughs) They desperately need the curative power of medicine. And The work that a veterinarian does by bridging research and producers, that's so important and so needed in this field to kind of energize it with new tactics of keeping bees and managing bees. And then like pushing them to their stress limits, all of those things, I think that we should be in on that conversation And we should have been in on that conversation. So I think it's going to be slow, but I do think that Outlook is good once we get everyone at the table who needs to be at the table and start doing the research that is targeted towards management and towards veterinary medicine so that we feel like we have a say in it and that we can, like, come at it with some information because, you know, vets don't know anything about bees, generally speaking. So it's going to take that added research, that consensus statement, Like those sorts of things that we get from like ACVIM or, you know, so I think that once that's kind of in place or slowly moving into place, then I think beekeepers will be able to trust us more and trust our expertise. And then we can go from there and actually like manage bees in a way that is healthy for them, but also economically feasible.
2: Thank you for that. Um, Dr. Lopez, can you kind of paint us a picture of what our world would look like without bees?
3: It's complicated, you know, honeybees or, or the honeybee that we use, it's used because of its size, it can pollinate a lot of things. One of the things it doesn't pollinate is alfalfa. That's why we have the alfalfa leaf cutter bee. And there are other things that overlap. So I think normally when I think about this question, I think about it multi tier you know, what would be a world without honeybees? It's one way of thinking about it. And what would be a world without bees? You know, a world without bees, it would dramatically decrease the plant diversity. A lot of plants, even non-food plants, right? So food plants, yeah. I mean, monocultures that we use for agriculture will be done. We might be able to switch to some flies. Uh, There's some beetles, uh, potentially some dragonflies, obviously butterflies and moths. Moths are a challenge, right? Because they only pollinate at night or dusk and dawn. So we won't be able to make a switch But basically, the food that we grow would dramatically change on what pollinators could fit in for the bees. We couldn't replace all bees with pollinators. I mean, our diets would be dramatically different. I don't think we would be able to grow. Well, I mean, we haven't found a better bee to do alfalfa than the alfalfa leaf cutting bee. That was part of this project, is trying to find if something can do its job, and it's hard to figure. And alfalfa is requires so much, right? You know, horses, but also beef, right? This is what cows eat. And so dramatically, then, beef goes away, right? Which is something that people don't think about. Whenever you talk about bees, they think fruits and vegetables. There's a little bit of fruits and vegetables that could be sustainable in a small scale that doesn't require bees, There's no small-scale beef without alfalfa and the things that the cows would eat. So our whole diet would dramatically change. I think there will be some new players. There will be some things that we find that we can grow and eat. And maybe some of them would be tasty. Maybe not. I think about bananas when I think about the bees. The banana that we eat now is called the Cavendish banana. But that wasn't the banana my grandfather used to eat. Back then, there was another banana, and the name escapes me now, and it was a little sweeter. And my grandfather always used to tell me, oh, bananas when I grew up were so much better. Well, bananas are clones, right? And so there was a fungus that wiped out that banana. And now we eat the Cavendish banana, and for the last 20 years, we've been expecting another fungus to wipe it out. And it's close, but it hasn't wiped them out. But in our lifetime, the banana will change. And the regular yellow banana that you eat will be a different variety with a different taste. And I think that's what's going to happen dramatically if bees goes away, right? We're going to have to get used to completely different meals and foods.
2: How can we spread more awareness of the bee situation? How not to fear them and how to actually help them a little bit? Because it sounds like they do need some more help.
1: Yeah, I I guess like to me, the most important place to deliver that message is within the veterinary community we as a profession work well on our feet and we have a clinical background that we can then apply to many different species. That's the whole point of our education. And so one more species isn't really that much. And especially if it's within somebody's means to help and to educate and to not be deathly terrified of honeybees, then that's so important. Bees really need vets right now, I would say in a way more than they need just somebody to appreciate them from afar. Because we are in a position that we can actively help them. And so I think that's up to our entire profession to do so.
0: Dr. Lopez, what is something that needs to be done to help fight against the population decline of bees?
3: You know, one of the biggest things that hasn't been happening with the colony collapse disorder discoveries and research is the hunt for the next bee. I mean, that's a lesson that we know from the Cavendish banana example. Banana people always knew there's going to be a next banana. And they've been doing research now for like 25, 30 years on the next banana. But we don't do that for honeybees, right? And I think that's what's really crucial. One of the factors of colony collapse disorder is that essentially their honeybees are not from here, right? So they will fall under invasive almost. And there's challenges in the U.S. That they don't have in europe just normal challenges of habitat then there's challenges with pesticides colony collapse disorder looks very different in europe compared to what it looks in the u.s and that has to do with the environment pesticide regulation and application is very different in certain parts of europe versus the u.s so i think understanding and agreeing and looking for the next bee is there is a next honeybee can one of our bees at the same time then we have to look at all these other things that are real factors how we can change pesticide use. I think there's something about the way that we grow crops in this immensely large monocultures. And we tried to implement changes in the last 30 years on how crop switching and having pollinator gardens and boundary areas and all of those things seem to work a little bit. But we haven't hit something that's really big. And I think the preparation for what to do next should be the step. It shouldn't be how to save the bee because the next bee, we may have to change it out as well. I think the preparation step really needs to be what's going to be our next main pollinator, what's going to be our universal pollinator, and maybe it won't be a bee, because there's so many flies and beetles out there, or maybe it can be a combination. On the individual level, we have to sort of get away from home landscapes and think more about native landscapes. Any person that plants something native to the region sees an increase in insects not just bees, but through that influence of native gardens and things that can be done at a small level, we might actually see a common pollinator. Whatever it is, might naturally just rise up given the opportunity. It's great to study colony collapse and trying to find out how to do it. But I think now we're so far along that we know that colony collapse disorder is basically a catchphrase for all the things gone bad. There's so many factors in there, you can't undo all of those. Right. And if really certain things like radio signals and cell phones may have an influence, I don't think we're going to go away from those. If Wi Fi affects bees, I don't think we can get around that. Right. So I think my main thing is finding what the next bee is and then take it from there or the next pollinator, I should say.
1: Um, I had a question about sure. what kinds of efforts
2: people are doing right now to encourage pollinator populations to grow and um, maintain current pollinator populations.
3: I think the biggest effort is this idea of pollinator gardens and pollinator strips. And whenever that happens, that seems to bring diversity up of pollinators in general, which promotes more of these native plants. This should be more widespread. But these pollinator spots then don't look nice, right? They don't look as pretty as uh, landscaping. There are no monocultures of flowers. You know, when you do landscaping, you can control it, you can spray, and then you put your tulips or a few things that look really nice, right? And so when you let it go into a wild flower sort of pollinator, promoting pollinator services, as they call it, then, I mean, it's going to be have a lot of flowers. And I think, I mean, I enjoy it, but it's not as, you know, pleasing to the people that are used to landscapes. And I think one of the biggest challenges there is people, we need to change our expectations of what some things need to look like pay attention
1: to legislation that affects or changes the use of pesticides, because we've been careless about that for a long time. And there's finally pushback. Once we have realized that there are pesticides that affect bees, it's, it's really challenging to kill a bad bug and save a good bug. Because generally speaking, same with like broad spectrum antibiotics, right? Like it messes with your gut microbiota kind of no matter what. So like, how, how can we have insecticides that don't also affect bees? It's like almost impossible. So supporting organic farming, if it's within your means, supporting like low pesticide farming, and even paying attention, like if your HOA is like spraying your yard, like, hey, uh, what are you using? Like, do you have to use that? Can you use something else? Letting the dandelions bloom and not mowing them right away. Like those kind of simple things, like that's one of the first pollen sources for bees um, in the springtime, in this area anyway. And pollen is critical for brood development. They can't build up the the size of their hive until they have sufficient pollen. So it's like something as silly as like letting dandelions bloom in your yard for like a couple weeks. They're little things, but they do really add up. And then there's, of course, the big things like paying attention to legislation and, and actively fighting it or voting against it if it um, affects bees.
2: Do you have any uh, takeaway points for our listeners?
3: My takeaway message would be that don't wait on us. You know, this is our job, this is our passion, but there's a lot of things that, that go on. And sometimes making new, new connections to build that bridge, it's the easiest thing for us to fall down the wayside, right? Of all the tasks that I have to do in a week, Reaching out to the high school to see if I can come over and talk to their students seems like low-hanging fruit, but it requires a lot of effort to get going. But if they reach out to me, it's a completely different story. I can promise this, right? On me, on my end, on my people, as many as I know, we're going to keep trying to build this bridge. But we need the public to do it too, right? We need the public to to kind of like hold us accountable to that.
1: For all the vets out there, I think uh, we all have it within our professional repertoire to do something to help the bees, whether it's just reading a little bit more research, whether it's treating bees, going to CE, those sorts of things. All of that we have been trained to do, whether we know it or not, um, or feel it or not. And not just as veterinarians, but as citizens, we should be paying attention to legislation that we know could be harmful to the environment and to bees, because as veterinarians, our oath is to be stewards of the earth as well. Also look out for new developments in the field of honeybee veterinary medicine, because it is growing rapidly. Maybe soon there will be even navily questions on it. We can all plant flowers and not kill our dandelions too quickly, and stay abreast of what administration will do about bees
2: community involvement and community outreach and education is important. And and I thank you so much for being with us today and having this conversation because you know what? That's where it all starts is a conversation. And this is ours.
1: Thank you to both of our guests for sharing their expertise on bees.
2: And thank you to our audience for listening.
0: And remember, be the change that you want to see in this world.
2: Thanks for joining us on VetCast, Veterinary Climate Action and Sustainability Talks, the podcast created by veterinary students at Colorado State University. To find more resources about this topic and details about each episode, check out the show notes. Thanks and see you next time on VetCast.